Welcome to the Highland Church Podcast, where we share biblical teaching to glorify God and to bless you. This year, we're talking about my part, God's plan. God has a purpose for you, and that purpose is a part of God's bigger plan for the world. Now, if you connect with what you hear today, I hope you'll join us online Sundays at 10 a.m., or that you'll join us on-site right here in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, let's jump into today's teaching, and don't forget, you're part of God's plan. Uh, the, the original, the working title of this sermon was, What's Love Got to Do With It? And uh, I mean, the, the staff can confirm they would walk by my office and I'd be like, what's love? You know, I just couldn't, couldn't stop uh, singing it. I even watched the music video from Tina Turner in the 80s. I'll tell you, hair was so awesome in the 80s. It was so good. You need to watch that music video this afternoon. Okay. Um, Tina, Tina Turner uh, sings about love, right? And what's it got to do with it? Okay. And um, for Tina... Apparently, love doesn't have much to do with it, okay? And, um, but the, in the Bible, in God's Word, love has a lot to do with everything, not just the it Tina was talking about, okay? And that's another sermon for another time. Um, in the Bible, love is a big deal. Did you know that some version of the word love is used 686 times in Scripture? Like, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a word that's used as often as that. And so Jesus, when he's trying to sum up all of Scripture, he goes to that word. He's asked this question. This is in Matthew 22. Jesus says this. Sorry, he's asked this question. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. In Mark's version, it adds, and all your strength. And he says, this is the first and greatest commandment. Now, that's going to be really relevant in a couple weeks with where we're going. But loving God is the first and greatest commandment. Secondly, he says this, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, so all of Scripture, hang on those two commandments. I can't believe I just had a pen in my pocket. That is so embarrassing. I'm here, Okay. Look what he says, all the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. Okay, you know, I've shared this before, that we have a thing in our family with our boys where I ask them, what's the most important thing? I ask them before they get out of the car every morning to run into school, before they go to bed, what's the most important thing? They say, love God, love my neighbor. Love God, love my neighbor. And it is a beautiful thing to hear it. I hope that they're living it out, and I love it when they say that. And it's a great idea that we would love God, and we would love our neighbor. And it sounds easy until you meet your neighbor. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you got a neighbor? We have the best neighbors in the world, and they moved out two months after we moved in. Not sure why. And uh, our new neighbor moved in, and the first day in the house, he cut down a row of my bushes, okay? I, so I go over our first interaction ever. Hey, bud, those bushes, I think they were mine. You can't undo cutting down someone's bushes, you know? And so you know what he did? He never apologized, and he built a fence. I'm struggling to live out this command with this neighbor, okay? Pray for me, all right? Okay, 
loving your neighbor sound good until you meet your neighbor. Okay, but that is what we're called to do, right? Okay, you understand this. But Jesus takes it a step farther. He says, not just your neighbor you got to love. He says this, maybe you remember this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Man. What Jesus does, and he reflects this biblical worldview, which is a helpful thing for us to see. He says there's two, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's your neighbors, and there's your enemies. And I love that very simple view of the world. And we feel justified as soon as he, he separates the world in that way for categorizing people into neighbors and enemies. And some neighbors, we move to enemies, right? Okay. We feel really justified in kind of seeing the world that way. He says there's two kinds of people, but then across both those categories, he lays down this big rubber stamp and he says, love them. Right. Whether they're your neighbor or their enemy, the responsibility is the same for you to love them. So if you were to define what the Christian life is about, loving God and loving others is really good shorthand for it. I want to love everybody. In fact, that we're told that Christians are going to, or sorry, that the world is going to know that we're Christians or that we love God by how well we love. So how well we love the world and each other is a really big deal. So here's what I love about y'all, is that you really want to love people. I know that there are churches out there that don't lead with love, and I'm thankful it's not this one. And that doesn't mean that we don't have room to grow. Absolutely, we do. But I know, I, I mean, I look at just the footprint of our church in the world, and it's a footprint of dramatic love and compassion across all kinds of boundary lines. But I also look at your personal lives and the way that you're loving people that you are in relationship with really well. And you talk to me about that often. And I just want to honor you that I know in your heart, you want to love people well. And so then we got to ask ourselves, how, how do I love well? How do I do that? Because we're living in a time where I think that there are different definitions for that one four-letter word. And we're all using the same word and we're meaning different things. And so I want to get really technical this morning and I want to show you how scripture defines not just what love is, but how we should do it. Okay. So we live in a world where there's a bibli or sorry, a dictionary definition of love, and that's something like love equals affection. Are you familiar with this? Love equals affection. So love is this feeling I feel for somebody. If you were to get it, open your dictionary, basically any dictionary entry is going to have some kind of definition that basically says that. Love is how I feel for somebody. And of course, this is problematic as it relates to marriages and relationships. Because sometimes I don't feel the way that I thought I was supposed to feel. Does that mean we're not in love? I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. So we know we just know that there's something problematic about that definition. But we live in a time where there has emerged a new definition of what love means. And this is where many Christians find themselves struggling to understand what their calling is because we live in a time where the cultural definition of love is affirmation. To love someone is to affirm 
everything about them, or at least the most important thing that they identify that they need you to affirm. And if you don't affirm that part of them, you don't love them. That's what they feel. I want to honor that many feel this way. They probably can't even fully explain why they feel that way, although many can. But they're caught up in a world that has come to define love as affirmation. Do you understand? Do you understand that? Okay. So what is the biblical definition of love? So you got dictionary definition, love equals affection, cultural definition, love equals affirmation, biblical definition, God is love. <clears throat> and you're thinking to yourself, Eric, I was sure you were going to have another A word uh, for that. You are the sloppiest preacher I have ever seen. Okay. All right. God is love. Okay. Here's the thing. Why, I do have another A word. Hang on. It's coming. Okay. I actually got two more. So hold tight there. Buckle up. Why does this matter though? Why is this important for you to see this? Well, here's what Christians recognize. So the people of God. I am supposed to love. And so when I hear that term used in the world, love, I'm drawn to it. Because it's a, if it's a love thing, it's a me thing. Do you understand that? Think about it like this. Let me use a metaphor. Suppose that you were on the beach and um, you had a metal detector on the beach and you're looking for treasure, pirate's treasure or something. I don't know. <clears throat> And so you've got your family over there, and they're all, you know, playing and stuff by the water. They've got their chairs set up, their umbrella, their toys, but you're off with your metal detector, and you're just searching for the sand. And all of a sudden, you hear this beep, 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 okay? And so the first thing you do is you, you mark that spot with an X, you run and get all your family, and you pick up all your stuff, you get all your kids, all their floaties and uh, boogie boards and everything, and you run over and you set up camp right on that spot, and you say, this is where we're supposed to be. This is the spot right here. And then somebody, your son probably, and one of my sons would do this, says, aren't you going to dig it up and see what it is? And you're like, no, 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 no. It's treasure. It's tr the signal went off. It's treasure. And, and what if it's like a soda can right there? You know, it's given off the same signal, but it's got a different substance or value. Do you, do you understand that? I, I think that's in some ways a helpful illustration to think about What's happening in our world is that we're hearing that word and we feel drawn to it like we should be because we're the people of love, but we actually arrive and don't dig it up and see what it really is and see if it's the treasure we're looking for. Um, you remember the princess bride? Remember that? The scene he keeps saying that it's inconceivable, right? And Inigo Montoya says, you keep using that word and I don't think it means what you think it means. I think I'm kind of having that experience right now as it relates to the broader conversation that we're studying in our class times. That everybody keeps using that word. In fact, this word is kind of the catchphrase or slogan for various movements in our time. And I don't think we mean the same thing when we're using it. So what does that word mean? Because here's the thing. If God is love, what that means is that God defines what love is and how to do it. And so even if I use a God word, if I don't define it in the way that he has, I'm not doing what he's called me to. Do you understand that? 
getting kind of technical today, so I might check in a couple times. So feel free to give me a nod of the head. That would be great. All right. So what is God love then? How do we define it? Okay, so Scott McKnight, a great biblical scholar, he does this exhaustive study of the passages related to God's love in Scripture. And he comes up with this definition that is great, and I'm going to kind of work from it and then grab some passages and try to explain it to you. But he says this. He says, God's love, and you might write this down if you're a note taker, God's love is a rugged commitment to be with and for someone. God's love is a rugged commitment to be with and for someone as that person is formed unto what God wants them to be. God's love is a rugged commitment to be with and for someone as that person is formed unto what God wants them to be. He says, he summarizes it like this. He says, love is a series of three prepositions, with, for, unto. And I like that. I like that, okay. Let me try to flesh this out with you. Let's talk about each of them for a second. One of the first promises God makes and the last promise God makes in Scripture is that he will be with his people. It's beautiful. I mean, you see it as early as Genesis 26. You see it repeated throughout the prophets. I'm thinking of places like Isaiah 43. You see it fulfilled dramatically in Jesus Christ when God's Son comes to dwell where? With us. And then you see it fulfilled beautifully in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on us. Jesus promises he'll give us his spirit, and he does. And we've been studying that in Acts. But I'll remind you that Romans 5 says that the Holy Spirit poured into your hearts is God's love with you. So we experience love by being with God. That's how we know he loves us. So how do I apply that principle as I think about the love that I'm called to, this love to be with someone as, as being part of it? Let me give you an example from my family. Okay, my, my, my parents live in Texas, and my sister lives not far from my parents. My sister has three little kids, okay? beautiful little kids, love them to death, and love my sister, love my folks. And so I think what my parents would tell you is that they love my sister and I the same. And every, every parent in the room would claim that, although we all have our favorites. No, we don't. We don't have our favorites. All right. Depends on when you ask. Okay, so anyways, <laughs> we don't have our favorites. Okay. They would say they love us the same. And, but here's what they would tell you. That loving those little girls, there's a degree to which that's a little bit easier because they're close. Right? They're close to them. They're there all the time. And so one of the things I appreciate about my parents so much is that they recognized this and they made this commitment that they would come to visit us every couple weekends. And coming from Texas to Memphis every couple weekends is a great cost to them, but they know that the way to express love is to be with somebody. It is really hard to express love from a distance. And so they have made this promise that they will come close for my sake, for Lindsay's sake, and the sake of our kids again and again and again. Late last night, I got a text from my dad about the next weekend they're coming. Just a couple from now. Right? Beautiful thing. Okay, so how does that apply to this situation? What I admire are parents, siblings, friends who learn something about the person they love and then that may be something they learn about them that they disagree with them about. But they don't push them away. They don't pull back. Instead, they commit to come closer to them. That's love. 
I think. And I'll admit that in eras gone by, particularly with the issues that we're talking about of gender and sexuality, and I know it was a different time, so I don't want to cast stones. I'm just telling you, I lament that in eras gone by, it was very common to shun or push away from somebody who expressed something that you disagreed with. That is not love. Not God love. You might think about it like a a relationship with your spouse. When you have a disagreement about something with your spouse, what does it create between you? It creates distance. And so maybe, you know, she goes to the bedroom, you go sit on the couch, and you pick up a book and act like you're reading it, but you're really just stewing about how mad you are, you know, and you've never done this. Okay, so, okay, what does love compel you to do? We're going to be back in the same bedroom tonight no matter what. We're going to come back together. We're going to be close together. Love is expressed by being with somebody. Let me give you one more example from from the text. Genesis 15, God makes a promise to Abraham that he's going to be with him and through Abraham to bless the whole world. This is a gospel promise in Genesis, Genesis 15. The way that they made promises in those days is that they would cut an animal in half. I'm glad we don't still have to do that. They would cut an animal in half, be a really bloody mess, and then both parties in the promise would walk through the animal. It signified how serious they were taking this promise. Well, in Genesis 15, when God makes this promise to be with Abraham forever and to bless the whole world through him, he is the only one that walks through the animal. Abraham never does. And what that's saying really clearly is, Abraham, there may come a time when you don't want to be with me. I promise I will always want to be with you, no matter what. Okay. Uh, but it's not just closeness. Okay, there's also, remember, Scott Manite says three prepositions. I think he's right. That God love is to be with somebody, but also to be for them. To be for them. Eleven times, from Genesis to Revelation, God repeats this same line. And the line is about his people. He says, I will be their God. I love that. But we hear that and we think he's like, God, what God is saying is, hey, uh, here's my people. They have a God. It's me. Great. That's not what he's saying. Okay, the worldview of the time was that there were other gods or other powers, other spiritual forces out there. And so we needed an advocate who was interceding for us, somebody who was on our side fighting these other forces off of us up there. And what God's saying when he says, I'll be their God is, these people I'm taking care of. I've got them. I'm going to protect them. And so he's advocating for us. And this is why the Holy Spirit is called our advocate. Why, when Jesus is raised on high, we're told that he's advocating at the right hand of the Father for us. To love somebody is to be for them, to advocate for them. And by that, we mean to recognize and see the good in them and to celebrate it and elevate it, to draw it out. I'll tell you a story. There was a professor at Abilene when I was there in graduate school named Charles Seibert, Charlie Seibert. And, um, He was blind, physically couldn't see, but he he had the ability to see better than anybody else in any room he walked into about what was happening. Does that make sense? Like he would walk into the room and he would understand and perceive things more clearly than everybody else who had sight. That was his gift. And so he was a church consultant and would work with churches. He worked with the Highland Church before I came here, but he also taught us. And I'll tell you, he was a tough guy. Um, they called him Chainsaw Charlie. 
because he could be ruthlessly honest with you. I can remember a time I was giving a sermon in class, you know, preacher class. I've worked up this good little sermon and he, he can't see anything, remember? And he sits there like this and he says, Eric, I see, which is an interesting word to use. I see what you were trying to do with that sermon. You just didn't do it. We'd be sitting around a table talking about some hypothetical church scenario and what you should do. And I'd, I'd raise my hand and offer some thoughts. And he'd say, you hear what Eric said we should do? That's the last thing you should ever do. <laughs> you know, he had the ability of seeing really clearly my shortcomings. And he would call them out. He would call them out. But when I was looking for a job, and Lindsay and I in our last year of graduate school were looking for a job, and I sent application after application out, made phone call after phone call, I cannot tell you how many rejections I got. It's tender. Uh, I wish I kept all those now. Um, I can't tell you how many rejections I got. Man, it was a hard time. We, I, was, I was desperate. I, I didn't know what we were going to do. I was going to support this woman. I had promised her dad I was going to be able to support her. And I, uh, the church of 12 couldn't pay the bills that I was preaching for, okay? And so Charles Seibert called Highland in August of that last year. I didn't get the job till April. I had my first interview in August because Charles Seibert called him and said, you should talk to this kid. I know he looks like he's 12. You should talk to him. <laughs> He's got all these things to offer. You should talk to him. And I remember along that like nine or 10 month process of interviewing, all the times I was discouraged, I thought, I'm not going to get it. Charles would say, I'll give him a call. Right? Okay. I think that's what God love looks like. It's not just that he's with you, but he's advocating for you. He sees what's good in you. And he wants to draw that out and show that to the world and celebrate that about you. I, I'm so thankful for our special needs ministry that's growing and thriving here at this church. And you know that we're praying that God would send us more. One of the things that has been helpful to me that I've learned in that process is what they call uh, person first language, which is instead of saying the autistic girl, you say the young lady with autism. And I, that language has been so helpful for me is not just as I think about special needs, but as I think about all kinds of issues that we carry in our lives, that I'm not uh, the sinner Eric. I'm Eric who is sinful. And what we see about God and the way that he loves us is he is very clear about the things that aren't yet right about us and loves us anyway. Like that he knows that we're made in his image and he wants to celebrate that and draw that good out of us, okay? He's for us in that sense. He's advocating for us in that sense. I mean, look at this. This is where it's put most clearly, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own what? Love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Whatever it is going on in your life, I'm willing to sacrifice myself to be on your side to elevate you. But then there's that last part here. And let's look at this. God does care about the parts of us that aren't yet what he wants them to be. And, and I, I want to say this as gently as I can say it. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is about us 
being changed. It is about us growing. To use the language of Scripture, it's about us being transformed. We read this here in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, we all, all of us, it's not just if you have one thing or another thing, all of us, with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image and the ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He's saying anyone who wants to love God and be loved by God has to accept that this means they will change and grow and develop. That's part of it. We're going to talk about this in a couple weeks ago. But this language, and we talked about this in our class, about be yourself. Okay. Yes, in some degree, God made you uniquely. He's given you unique gifts that reflect his image. But he also wants you to grow to reflect the image of his son. And that, that's a really fascinating thing to consider. You know, James says that the image of God in us is something we never lose. And Paul says right here that the image of God is still something that we have to grow in. Do you see that? I mean, th- I think about like my boys. When they were born, you know, they've got my DNA in them, and they looked like me. Same cowlick and everything that I've got. As they grow, they're going to probably, unfortunately, look more like me. You know, do you, do you get that? Okay, so all of us have this innate dignity and worth and goodness in us because God's image is in all of us, and yet all of us need to grow and be transformed to look more like Christ. So I get a call, though. So as you think, this is what we mean by God's love is unto what God wants you to be. He's loving you in the direction of the growth that he desires for you. So how does that, how, how do I do that? How do I love somebody directionally? I get a call from one of my shepherds the other day, King Gardner. He calls me, I'm at the office. He's like, hey, Eric, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, nothing, just saving souls, just a day's work, you know, no big deal. And... uh And Ken said, oh, Eric, you know you don't do that, right? That's not what we're paying you for. Only Jesus saves souls. Only God transforms people. And so it's at this point that we run into the limits of our love. That we see the burden or the responsibility and even our ability to be with and for someone, even if we disagree with them, to come close, to advocate for them. But we recognize, I can't unto them. I can't change them. And so when that happens, I am... Well, I consider that possibly I should let go of what I believe And say that doesn't matter anymore. I'm only going to be with and for you. Because I can't do the unto thing. Okay. But let me show you this here in Romans 12. I've been kind of building up to this one passage, which if you're going to underline something today, underline this in your Bible. Romans 12, 9 through 10. Where Paul makes really clear the actual God love that we're capable of. The way that Scripture works here, let me just kind of cue you in on Scripture here, is it's a bracket. You have love in the first line, love in the last line. Those are brackets. So I'm going to pay attention to what happens inside the brackets because that's defining love. 
So this is what we read here in Romans 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Okay, you see it? Love, love. So what's love? Hate. You did not expect to see that word in a definition of love. In fact, our world would say, if that word occurs anywhere in your definition of love, it's not love. But Paul says in Romans 12, we believe inspired by God that love is to hate what is evil and cling to what's good. Now, in that second part, you're going to see the first two things I was talking about, being with and for somebody, clinging, that describes proximity and closeness to what's good, advocacy. I'm going to be the person, that, and the person with the people that I love. I cling to what's good in them, and I elevate that, and I lift it up. But also this, I hate what's not good. I hate that. I'm clear about that. Does that mean I change them or transform them? No, that's not the same as saying that I save them. It's saying I am clear about what I don't believe is right for them or good for them. Well, let, me, let me leave you with this thought, and we're going to explore this in various other ways in the next few weeks. Um, to say to someone you love that this part of you I disagree with because of my love for God first. To say that is to create tension between you and that person. And we don't like tension. But here's what I believe. I think that we confuse tense and toxic all the time. And that we think just because somebody disagrees with me, that they're hateful or harmful to me, and we write them off as enemies. When I think tension is very different, in fact, I think we are called to tension with others. Because James tells us in James chapter 5, look at the very last verses of James chapter 5, he does say that we contribute to someone's turning. You might think about it like this. Let's say you have a person you love and there's something that you disagree with them on and you put this big life-size rubber band around you and that person. And so they disagree with you about this. And so they start walking out this way and... There's the video, sorry. Okay, um, so they... You put this life-size rubber band around you, okay? And they start walking this way, okay? And on, on your convictions, on your beliefs, you're not moving. On your closeness, on your affection, you're willing to move, right? You're willing to come. On your advocacy, you're willing to move. But on your convictions, you're not. So I'm going to stay still. I've got this rubber band around me. There's this rubber band around them. And it's possible. It's not a guarantee. It's possible that over time, that tension between the two of you who feels themselves pulling this way may, might, lead them to consider turning. And so that is different than saying you're going to save somebody. Jesus saves people. It's different than saying you're going to change somebody. Jesus does that. But I may have a hand in turning them unto what God wants them to be. And so I don't have to sacrifice what I believe to love somebody. So let me show you. Okay, let me end with this. I'm going long. 
story of my life. Okay, so we live in a world that defines love as affection or now affirmation. But the biblical definition of love is something much more like advocacy and accountability. I think we're going to throw that up on the screen. I told you I had A words for this. Do you see the difference? Advocacy to be with and for somebody fully, completely on your side, championing you. Accountability, not the part of you that's not right. Let me, let me in that area be a source of tension that you might turn. Now here, here's, here's what we know. If you do that last part in our world, Many are told to believe you don't love them. And if you don't affirm that part of them, they may feel unloved. And that is a tragedy. And I wish I could solve that, but I can't. Here's what I would say is incumbent on you that if you hold on to your convictions about what's right or best or good for them and glorifying to God and don't affirm that part of them and to love them in that way, you have to work harder to love them in the other ways to show it. Okay? So they may pull away and, and, and push you away. Come close. Like you've got to work harder. In some ways, it's easier to affirm and to live without that tension than to live in it. And if you choose the tension, you've got to work harder at the loving. It's part of it. But let me point out, it's the tension that we have with God that motivates us to become who he wants us to be. And so a life without tension, that's no kind of life. At least not the one that God wants for you. Let me say a prayer over you. God, your people are here in this room. Your people. Who you love. Who you love so much that you would give your son for them. And God, we want to love like that. And yet, wow. How hard that is. God, make us servants of yours who would sacrifice maybe our time, our energy, our money, our resources to show somebody how much we love them by being with them and for them. But God, that doesn't mean we have to sacrifice what we believe. And so I pray that you would fill us with both conviction and compassion grace and truth for your sake and for your glory. And I pray, God, I pray, especially right now, for those in this room who are hearing this and it's raw and it's hurting, and God, I pray that you would build them up, that you would call them to what you want for them. They would sense your loving embrace in their life and that they would follow you because they love and trust you. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.